Welcome everyone to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson, and today we have a special episode for you recorded in Washington, D.C. at the Association of Corporate Counsel's annual conference. We recorded several episodes at the conference, and I think they are some of the best conversations we've had to date. Longtime listeners may notice that the audio isn't quite as good as we typically produce. We used our travel equipment, so please forgive any technical issues. We have a special guest with us today. Chris Green is the Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary for Canal Insurance. And we are recording here live at the ACC National Meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, and Chris is attending. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Mark, thanks for having me here. This is wonderful. Great. I'm, I'm excited about it. And Chris, as we were talking, I think one thing that a lot of general counsel struggle with is kind of the relationship that they have to handle both within the legal department, but also with the business folks. So what I thought we could talk about this afternoon are some tips and insights to, to that relationship. I know you've held multiple hats within Canal, as we were talking about a moment ago, and dealt with different relationships. So I think you've got a lot to add on that topic. Well, that's a great topic. And um, I think you couldn't have hit on a more vital topic to just the dynamics of what goes on in any business. Uh, when you are general counsel, when you are running the legal department, you're balancing all of that, how to staff, how many lawyers you need, all the way down to the ratio of paralegals or whatever, but most importantly, how to make sure that you, you're teed up so that you meet the business needs and their expectations. Great. Well, let's, let's break it down into kind of those two components. Let's talk first about kind of managing the legal department, and then we'll talk about how that legal department and you particularly in a role as GC or whatever leadership role you've got, how you relate to the business folks. You know, we were talking earlier, I think there's approximately 2,700 lawyers here at the National ACC meeting. Obviously, the number of in-house counsel have grown over the last several years, and that's certainly my experience as we continue to sometimes lose lawyers to in-house positions. And I think that is, you know, creating a little bit of a change in the culture because companies that never had in-house counsel now have them. Uh, and companies that may have had one or two lawyers in-house now have bigger departments. Um, what's been what's been your experience in terms of size and what are some of the challenges that come with that? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, what I'll say is that I've built law departments now in two different insurance companies. And just to speak specifically about my canal experience, when I joined Canal almost nine years ago, there had been a, uh, an absence of a general counsel there for several years. Uh, I was the only lawyer and basically grew the department, and now we're a staff of 15. So, wow. uh, so I think, to your point, that really underlines the shift that you're seeing. I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people would leave firms and go in-house because they viewed it as a quality of life issue. I can promise you that that's really, I mean, we, I think we work just as hard as people do in, uh, who are attorneys in firms. We just don't have to bill our time, uh, right. uh, which sometimes I think means we work harder and longer. Uh, but yeah, you, don't, you can't look back at the end of the month or the year and say, oh, look how many hours exactly. I know. You just know you work darn hard. Uh, but it's a great evolution of uh, companies recognizing the importance of having legal talent 
in their shops. Uh, that's not to take away from the law firms. They still have a very vital uh, purpose, generally to specific subject matter or expertise that you just you, you don't have the bandwidth to staff for in a legal department. But uh, but the businesses that I have worked for have certainly recognized the importance of having attorneys on staff to help them make those critical business decisions. Um, you know, you've obviously, you've grown that department quite a bit. And I know some of our listeners may still be where they're the only guy in town. How did you decide when it was time to grow? What positions to create? You know, what help our listeners understand that process if they're maybe earlier in the stage than you are and they feel like they've got to grow the department but aren't sure how to do it or what positions to create? Yes. What I'll say, and I'll get a little bit into something that I feel is, is very important uh, personally, is the, the need for in-house lawyers to really have the business acumen to help the business in get beyond just the, the traditional legal services. And so when you're looking at your legal department, I think you just you, you do the basic uh, business planning that any department in a company would do. Trying to develop the staffing model in a legal department is harder because it's uh, you, some things are very transactional in nature and you can just do a stick count. But a lot of it is just what's going on in the business. And, uh, and if you have a big tech project that's going on in the business where you're gonna have uh, interaction with vendors, then you know you need to staff up for that simple cost-benefit analysis, uh, and, and that's the decision point. Is this project going to be long-term? If I went outside, what would be the cost? And generally, you just do that simple analysis and make the decision. That's interesting. How is, you said there are 15 total in the legal department. What? How are they structured, either by job title, and do you have lawyers and paralegals, or how, what kind of, yeah, how does it break down? Is it a traditional kind of tree where you've got certain lawyers supervising other lawyers, just, yeah. to just help our listeners understand sure. how you do it. Because I think sometimes, I've seen it done different ways. I think sometimes folks struggle with, you know, if they're all assistant counsel or do I divide up, do I have litigation and regulatory and corporate, you know, how do I do it? And I know insurance may be a little different than other businesses, it, but it, interested in how, you know, how you've got it structured. It is a little bit different, Mark, but not not materially so. Uh, the 15, half of them are attorneys. Uh, and the other half are non-lawyers doing paralegal work or our compliance type work. Uh, obviously, the insurance industry is highly regulated, so uh, and regulated at the state level. So Canal is authorized to write business in 47 states, and so that's just a lot of different state rules and regulations to make sure that you're on top of. And so we have compliance uh, professionals that do that. Um, generally, we'll staff the paralegals two or sometimes three lawyers to one paralegal and then just with respect to the lawyers because we are an insurance company and our business to some extent is resolving claims when they occur we have several lawyers who are devoted to helping those claims professionals make the right decision on coverage trying to interpret the policy uh, decide whether we need to reserve our rights or, or those types of typically insurance-related things. And then uh, the rest of the lawyers are really generalist, uh, whatever we need them to do, contracts, a little bit of IP, but because we're an insurance company, it, you know, we have smatterings of real estate or IP or HR issues, and it's not something that would dominate one lawyer's full-time. So you, you basically turn lawyers into generalists, hmm. and that makes them, in my view, position to move up 
uh, and I've lost two lawyers in the in the last three years who have moved up and become general counsels of other companies. So I like very proud of that, and like to say that you get people in, you provide them a wide opportunity to learn, and then they go and do great things elsewhere. Yeah, no, I, and that's interesting. Well, because that, that in part answers some of the questions. I know some people, there's always a question of what's what's my next step in terms of advancement. And obviously in a law firm environment, you got a fairly norm, you know, associate partner or associate salary partner equity, that kind of track. Um, it seems to me the opportunities for advancement might be limited in-house unless the general counsel retires, but you've just identified one where you can still advance simply by going to a different company. Sure. The, you've the, got those skills. The insurance business is unique in that it is a huge industry, but surprisingly small network. And so even a big conference as we are sitting in today with the 2,700 lawyers from all over the world, uh, there's a small segment of that that are just insurance lawyers and you come to these things to network. Uh, and uh, that is something else that I feel very strongly about is especially when you're in a small in-house situation where you may be the only lawyer, create your network. And that's key to be, just be able to pick up the phone and, and talk to another general counsel at another company and say, hey, have you ever seen this or that? No, that makes a lot of sense. Chris, let, let's talk for a minute about more nitty-gritty on management. With 15 staff in the department, do you hold regular meetings? Is there like a monthly meeting, weekly? Do you do emails? How, how do you just do the management piece to try to make sure people know what everyone else is doing and stay on the same page? Right. Um, well, if 15, um, we still believe in being transparent and being collaborative, and so there's a lot of projects that we work jointly on. I think that's important. Uh, just for development, professional development of the younger lawyers. We've tried everything through the years, uh, <laughs> from weekly staff meetings to biweekly staff meetings to uh, breaking out and having project-based meetings. Uh, what I've discovered through the years is the best way to do it uh, is trust your people that they're going to bring you something when they need to bring your attention to it. Uh, and otherwise, we have a weekly, what I call, huddle, and we literally just pull together in, in a conference room. Nobody sits down, we just stand and we talk about what's going on that week. And we call it the legal huddle. Okay. Uh, we do the same thing. The, the, about the, how long does that last or is it really very? It lasts as long as it needs to. And some uh, weeks it will, it will go 10 minutes and some weeks it will go an hour and a half. Okay. So it just really depends on what's going on. But uh, I, what I discovered was when you were having formal meetings, there's some junior staff that sometimes was, you know, they didn't want to be the one talking in the meetings. There's some that would dominate the meetings. Yeah, <laughs> so right. the right, huddle. This is their showcase <laughs> opportunity, right? Right. It's uh, got to it, impress the boss. Yeah. So my my view of it, the the theory behind it, and it was a, it certainly was a theory that evolved over time. Was uh, you know a huddle where people have to stand. It's almost like the old elevator pitch, you know. So if I've got something to convey, but standing, they generally keep it short. That's a great tip. But it's interesting. I've heard that in the business context, this idea of stand-up meetings. But I will say, you're the first lawyer I've talked to that does stand-up meetings. I wonder, you know, so I. So that's a practical tip for all our listeners. I like that idea because you have to strike that balance between you need to keep people in the loop, but to some extent, meetings are often viewed as unproductive time. You know, it, it came to me in a little bit of an epiphany because uh, about two years ago, I moved to a stand-up desk. Uh, 
and I read some study that said you were so much more efficient uh, and productive, and I believe that's true, and I did that two years ago, and I would say now at Canal, probably 15% of the population have moved to stand-up desk. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, our firm made the same move. I, I like it. It's a nice, yeah. you know. And it, is yours adjustable up or down? Yes, I won't. Yeah, so you, we won't you don't have to stand brands, all the, but, yeah, uh, no. but it's right. great. So this is sponsored by uh, Stand Up Desk Inc. <laughs> but it's, that's the greatest invention ever because you can lower it if you want to. And I right. find if you're working on something more substantive, you're you know, redlining a brief or something like that, sometimes you got to sit down and kind of hunker in. Uh, but for the most part... You know, I'm going from meeting to meeting, and you're on your feet all day, and so uh, I just feel so much more productive standing at, at the desk. That's great. All right, well, let's, let's shift gears. We talked some about, and I think you've given some interesting tips on growing and managing that. One other question, I guess, before I move on. Sure. Do the lawyers all report to you, or do you have an internal reporting structure where they're reporting to each other? All the lawyers re- report to me. Some of the um, non-lawyer personnel, uh, we have actually uh, shifted the reporting relationships and have a couple of the, the lawyers that have been there a while and, and they're in senior counsel status where we're having those non-lawyer professionals report to them. It gives them, again, some professional development because some of them have never managed people. So it's, it's just part of the progression to make them better in-house lawyers. Well, that makes sense. And do you do formal evaluations of the lawyers? And is that something that Canal has implemented for as part of through HR or that you just decided to do? Or, or how does that evaluation piece? That's another one where I've seen the whole range from right. what's an evaluation to, uh, you know, lengthy form, you know, kind of written formal process. So well, where are you on that it, spectrum? It, it's, it's, it's twofold. Um, we have a very formal process at Canal. So there's, um, you know, annual goals set quarterly meetings to review where you are on the goals and to some extent the compensation is tied to that. Um, The other thing that we do and I think this is important and this is something that is just unique to the legal department is I send out uh, internal client satisfaction survey every year because I want to know our internal customers how we're doing. So I use that, those results of that uh, as part of the end of the year review discussion too. Gotcha. Well, that's the perfect segue to part two of the uh, podcast, which is, all right, that's how you're managing legal, but we know you're ultimately reporting to your internal clients. You know, and I think that may be, in some ways, the hardest thing for a lot of new uh, general counsel or even people that have been doing it 20 years to figure out is, you know, who, who are those clients? How do I keep them happy? How do I manage expectations? That, again, is not something you ever learned in law school, but you've been doing it for a while. So tell me first, to kind of, how do you view that client or clients? And how do you, you've, you've already hit on one thing with this satisfaction survey, and I wanna, I'll have some more questions about that. But talk to me generally about kind of what, what are your goals? How, how do you see that that client-facing relationship? Yeah, again, that was a kind of an evolution of my thinking too. Uh, I think when you're new to uh, the GC role, which I was 15 years ago, you think in terms of just you know traditional lawyer stuff. And does the business need a contract review? Does uh, you know if you're not asked a specific legal question, then 
you know, you kind of keep your mouth shut in the meetings. That really was not how I wanted to be an in-house lawyer. And so I set about uh, getting more and more involved in the business. And so I look at my internal clients really to a great extent as peers. And we're all trying to row the boat the same direction when we talk about the uh, you know setting uh, business objectives every year. I participate in that. Next week is our annual strategic planning offsite where we go, and, and this, so it's the senior team, and we go and spend a couple of days just formalizing the business plan for the coming year because we're gonna present that to the board in a, our fourth quarter board meeting. And I think that what's important is that, yes, the business needs your skill set as a lawyer, but you want to get them thinking of you as a business person, as a peer to what's going on in the business too. Gotcha. So, um, I mean, do you who, who do you report to? The CEO. Okay. So you report directly to the CEO. And does he do an evaluation of you the same way you do for, for the other folks? Yes. All right. <laughs> there are goals set and right. quarterly reviews of where, where we are. Now, my goals are very different from, say, a senior counsel. A lot of their goals will be more service-level commitments or our success on this deal or that deal or whatever. Uh, my goals are, are have some legal been to them if we have a big case and it's a case that I'm managing personally but most of the time it's helping the business meet this business goal or that business goal and so a lot of my goals are business related just like the CFO or all right so you have business objectives not just legal objectives (laughs) given your (laughs) given what you just said about the those kind of mixed roles yeah because I think I think the in-house lawyers have skin in that game and and if they're really in the right place and really providing that that business advisory component of the in-house lawyer job then the business is going to seek their advice out uh, not just on legal issues but on basically anything I, I think uh, I've come a long way in being a key advisor to the CEO at Canal and and I'm grateful for that because it makes the job so much more rewarding well and by doing that too you fully understand your client and so you can be a better, when it comes time to put on your lawyer hat, um, you can do a better job. Right. I, I know as a litigator, you know, my first mission is generally understanding as much as I can about the client or at least the client piece that's involved in litigation. Exactly. I can't litigate that defective piece of equipment or the problem in the construction project or the the breach of the contract unless I really understand what the contract was about and right. what the service was or the goods were. And I think in the same way, but at a deeper level, you're really understanding those business objectives so you can provide the best legal advice. I, I think my... Um when I was in an outside law firm early in my career, I think that what I appreciated most and sometimes to the detriment of the in-house lawyer was that the client would confide in me and seem to trust me more than they would you know, somebody that was doing contract review or whatever in their shop. And I think that paradigm has shifted to the better. So I think it's made the in-house counsel job more enjoyable. There's a greater span of what in-house lawyers are asked to do now. There's a greater trust at the senior level of organizations, and I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, oh, that's great. 
So you mentioned the client satisfaction survey earlier. Tell me a little more about that. That's interesting because I'm not sure how many uh, how many companies in-house counsel use that. Where did you come up with the form? Can you tell us a little bit about the what items are being measured or how that's done? It is a very high-level survey, I'll, I'll say that. Um, I do think it's important to get feedback, and we wanted to formalize that feedback. When I worked for a, another insurance company years ago in an in-house capacity, they would do an employee survey of everyone. When I came to Canal, they weren't doing employee surveys of everyone, but I wanted to get the feedback from our internal customers. And so we developed the survey. We've been doing it now for as long, probably not the first year I was there, but since then. So about seven, uh, eight years. So you've got baseline data as well. Yeah. I mean, is it, a, is it an objective rating survey or do they write or one of these, you know, tell us what was good and what was bad? It, it's both. Just tell me a little yeah. bit more about the actual yeah. form. So, so it's, we do it through SurveyMonkey. It's, um, uh, it's generally eight or ten questions. It's very simple. And it's tied to, generally you try to tie it to that particular person and who their internal clients are. So if, if it's the compliance manager where their job is to help with regulatory filings, uh, and they're working a lot with the business on the product management side, you're going to tailor questions to that. With the lawyers, again, it, it's tailored a little bit, but there's the same two or three standard questions about timeliness, responsiveness, uh, quality of the work product. Those are the things that just a numerical scale and then I always leave them a box so they can not, they don't have to, but they can provide feedback. I find that about half the participants will give you feedback. And then about half the time it's good and about half the time it's bad. Uh, but it has, uh, we, it, that has in the past uh, given us some surprising information that sometimes has led to personnel issues. So it's a good thing to do. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I know as a firm, we've got a client service review process where we will survey, not necessarily all clients, but you know major clients to try to do that satisfaction. I think it's amazing what information you learn. But I just I commend you for trying to take that in-house and, and doing still doing a client survey in-house because I'm not sure, you know, again, I'm not sure that that happens at all. We, we took it a step further on the claims side because on the claims end, we've got 75 lawyers that we uh, are on our panel that we utilize countrywide on claims related litigation and we wanted to get feedback from them about how the adjuster had done and and then a, a new twist we started asking the adjuster to do a survey on how the lawyer had done on the file again I, you know it was an experiment and you know so far it's been okay so what you find is that when there's that kind of relationship the attorney and the client and they're sending them work, both of them are just going to be over the top with praise on how it went. So you get what you get. So we'll, we'll see if we continue that experiment. Sounds good. You know, I, we talked at the top of the show about the increase in the number of general counsel. And I think a lot of the ones I see are fairly young. You've got folks either right out of law school or maybe a year or two with a firm that are now taking in-house positions. Maybe it's not as a GC, maybe in smaller companies. I guess you've been doing this for a while now. Yes. Um, what tips would you want to share with the younger folks that may be listening um, you know, having done it for a while, either pitfalls to avoid or, or tips, maybe beyond what we've, some of the things we've already covered. Well, Mark, you said it earlier. 
what you do with the client when you get a new matter, you have to understand your client's business. And so as a, a new GC or a new in-house attorney coming into a company, you've got to really dig in and understand what's going on. I tell new lawyers because I, as I mentioned, I've lost a few lawyers who have moved up and gone into GC roles and they, they inevitably always call me and say, what do I do? <laughs> and I say, go to business meetings even if they make you sit in the back. Uh, go and read the past three years of board minutes. Meet your directors, talk with your directors. Go and if you are a formal when you have your board meetings and you create board books and that, you know, get into that. You'll, it's unbelievable what you'll learn about your organization, warts and all, when you start delving into the corporate records a little bit. And I think it's just absolutely necessary that you have to do that. In my um, uh, former career, I was a daily newspaper reporter. And um, one of the things that I learned about covering, specifically when you're, when you're covering government, is exactly that. Like, if you get assigned to this new government beat, the first thing you need to do is go into those records, the, the meeting logs, Absolutely. and read through there. Because I think a lot of times in in both of those kinds of examples, you have the advantage of it's there, you know, and, and you're able to like go back and get all this history in one fell swoop. You right. know, and that's not necessarily the case, but it's such a simple thing. I mean, it takes a little time, obviously, but it's such a simple thing that you have access to that gives you that edge that gives you that one up and you're not kind of having to fumble around and ask questions and get information. Well, and, and, and otherwise you won't know what's going on and you're sitting in a meeting and they're talking about something that you have no idea about. And so if you'd bothered to do a little homework, then you can come in there and be a contributor to that meeting and not just on the legal issues. That's what, that's my point is understand the business and don't be shy about your opinions on what the organization should do because you're there to safeguard the risk you want to be you know, mitigating those risks of the organization all the time uh, the other the other thing i tell new gc new in-house lawyers obviously look at those documents is very important but also if you're not involved in these great organizations like the ACC get involved. It's a minimal expense to join, and it gives you sample documents. It gives you network of contacts. So that's vital, too, to have a place where you can go and get documents or just ask questions. And so these listservs that all of these organizations have now, you can just, in an anonymous way, if you want to, just say, hey, how do I draft a non-compete in you know, Delaware. And there's somebody that will usually say, Here, here's how you do it, and here's a copy of one. Just building that work, network is important, too. That's great. The other thing that occurred to me when you're talking about reading the board minutes or sitting in the back is you can get some of the, I'll call it office politics or company politics that I think is often hard. You may inadvertently not realize that Joe is the guy who really calls the shots and Joe's really worried about issue X. And you can do your job better if you know, hey, Joe's really worried about that and you're ready to go or you're prepared. And if you haven't done that background, it's easy to make mistakes and not legal mistakes. It's not a problem in the advice, but you fail to appreciate that Joe's been here a long time and doesn't want things done that way. And kind of you can avoid those political landmines, which can be 
problematic early on in your career because uh, oftentimes I think general counsel are loved or hated and hence move on as much based on some personality conflict right. with, uh, with management than any particular legal skill. I think that's right, yes. Um, and the other thing that I'll, I'll say is there's a lot of, especially younger uh, lawyers that come in-house and they're there because the business said, well, it's cheaper if we just hire this person to do this. And that's great. But if you want to broaden your horizons once you get there, if you are you know, there as a staff attorney and you want to get the business thinking about a broader role for you, hey, this really, you, know, you hired me as a staff attorney, but this really should be a general counsel role, then you, you know, go and find out where you can add more value. If you have, you know, some in your prior experience uh, touched on the HR world, employment issues, then go and sit down with your HR person and say, I can help you, just let's work together. And really just kind of almost like volunteering. Uh, but that's the way to expand your plate in organizations because once they see that there's somebody that has the skill set and has the bandwidth and the desire and what they, the advice they give you is good advice, then they'll just say, hey, take it. And so that's how you turn a, a small staff attorney job into a general counsel job. <laughs> Great. Yes. Great. Job creation yes. <laughs> on the inside. That's terrific. One question that I had, uh, because you've talked so much about really becoming a part of the, being seen as a part of the business decision-making process and getting in there and being in that capacity. And one of the cliches that we hear about, especially with in-house, but attorneys in general with businesses, that attorneys are too risk averse and get in the way of business because you're so risk averse. How do you approach risk management with that perspective that you, you do want to be kind of seen as uh, understood as part of the business strategy? Right. Um, that's a really good question. It is a balancing act all the time, no matter what you're doing. It's, it's not even limited to legal decisions. It's, you know, I'm going to go make a decision to buy a new car. Uh, life is full of analyzing the risk, mitigating the risk, and then doing something about it. And so if you have that kind of mentality on kind of everything you do, especially in your job as legal counsel to a company, when somebody throws out a goofy idea, you can articulate the risk versus reward. You can talk about the downside. You can talk about um, the repercussions. Think of it in a global sense, regulatory. And this is again where I say, you know, lawyers need to get out of their sweet spot because if somebody presents an issue, then the lawyer's risk analysis always goes to legal issues. And I say, don't stop there. Think about the other stuff. Think about, does it present a reputational risk to the organization? How is it going to impact us from a competitive standpoint? Think about the totality of it. And then at some point, there's a, either a board or a CEO that's going to listen and then make that decision. And, you know, there's, there's been very rarely, you know, I used to hear, that legal departments were, uh, you, you don't want to be a legal departments that the department of no, because they just said no all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I've never done that. I, I know there's legal departments that people say, well, our lawyer won't let us do anything. 
I've always invested in just this critical thinking about risk, how can we mitigate it. Very rarely, if the business suggests something and there's a lot of risk to it, very rarely is it just that one thing. Usually there's an alternative way that you can come up with to get to what their ultimate outcome wants to be. And if you understand the business, then you're going to be able to help them get there and you avoid the risk or you mitigate it so that it's really minimal. And I would imagine that goes back to what you were saying earlier too about the only way you're going to know as in-house counsel that there's a way to kind of go at that from a different angle is by having a good relationship with folks outside of the legal department. Absolutely. Knowing what everybody else is doing. Absolutely. Don't limit yourself to, you know, fulfilling your annual CLE requirements on the same old, same old. Broaden, you know, if you, if your HR person is interested in you helping out a little bit on employment issues, then target your CLEs that year to do those just invest in developing yourself. That's that's the best advice I can give any any lawyer. I mean, it's your career. So the more arrows you can give your company that are in your quiver, the better you're going to be able to do your job. <laughs> that's great. No, I, I think those are that makes a lot of sense to try to develop folks in that way. And I think that if you think of it as what else am I doing to promote that business interest, you are going to generate that support and and the feedback yes um, and think broadly not just about legal not just about legal where, where i know that i've succeeded is when i get a call from our chairman of the board or our ceo and he's asking a business question <laughs> that's when you know that you've really done, done that magical conversion where you're a business person, you're a business partner that just happens to be a lawyer instead of a lawyer that's trying to learn the business. That's great. All right. Well, that's the goal for all you listeners, right? Get the call on business stuff um, and move away from that kind of sometimes artificial division between, okay, is this, am I a lawyer? Am I a business person? Um, I would caution listeners, you have to do be careful. And I welcome Chris, if you want to comment. Obviously, from a privilege standpoint, the law is clear on attorney-client privilege that what's protected is legal advice, communications to you, uh, seeking legal advice, and you're providing legal advice. There are some court cases out there saying purely business activities are not protected by the privilege. So you can certainly do that, but you might be asked about that advice in a deposition one day. So I, uh, I, I've, uh, <laughs> I've been a practicing attorney now for 27 years. Knock on wood, I've never been deposed. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. a, that's a record I like uh, very much. And you are absolutely right on the privilege issue. So be familiar with your state and the case law on privilege. And then when you are wearing your business hat, understand that uh, emails are important and discoverable. Uh, when you're wearing your lawyer hat, you, I mean, it's just all in how you craft your communications and be very clear. And don't, please don't, just always claim a blanket attorney-client privilege on everything because that's just, you know, it's not gonna be believable if you're involved in the business too. Just understand and it be clear in your mind what the segregation is and do your correspondence that way, and you generally don't have any issues. There's been plenty of cases where my communications have been discoverable. Uh, they weren't issues because the stuff we wanted to claim privilege on, it was very clear that I had my lawyer hat on then. So right. 
Good advice, Mark. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I think if you keep those roles, there's nothing that says you can't do both roles. You just need to be thinking about which role it is. Right. And it sounds mm. like you obviously have been. But I think as we encourage people to do that, right, just think about is this privileged? Absolutely. It's not always a bright line because sometimes business advice, you know, risk assessment, is it legal risk? Is it business risk? Is it both? Isn't easy. And, you know, I think I, most folks would err on the side of claiming privilege if there's a colorable argument. But if you do it for everything, the blanket privilege then may come back to bite you. Absolutely. And if you have any doubt, that's why you have smart outside lawyers like Mark. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And we're hoping to do a podcast in the future on uh, on the whole topic about being deposed, how to avoid it, what to do if that happens. So that's a future, a teaser for listeners uh, in terms of what may be coming up. Well, Chris, those are very helpful tips. I thank you so much for sharing that wisdom with folks. And I think given your experience, that's, those are some practical things that people can put into practice now to learn more about the business folks and how to work with them. So I, I appreciate you uh, sharing. Well, I appreciate the time you gave me. Your, uh, your podcast is famous, and so I'm quite privileged to be a part of it. Thank Great. you. Great. Terrific. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as 